Hi, folks, and welcome to White Collar Week. Today we have on the podcast two friends of mine, Trevor Shevin and Joshua Cagney, two guys who had it all, lost it all, got clean and sober, and then became specialists in um, interventions and treatment for substance abuse and recovery. Trevor was a Wall Street guy, witnessed 9-11, got sober soon after, and um, with me attended uh, recovery meetings in Greenwich, Connecticut, where he founded Sterling Recovery Services, and he's doing incredible work that he'll tell you all about on the podcast. Joshua has a slightly different story. He got drunk one night, was in a car wreck, someone got killed, and he served seven years in prison in Virginia for a vehicular homicide. His story is one of uh, recovery, and then uh, he came back. He's now a founder and director of New Paradigm Recovery in Tyson's Corner, Virginia. Two incredible guys, two incredible stories, and they're both here with us tonight on White Collar Week. I hope you'll stay with us, and uh, let's get started. Hello, and welcome to White Collar Week, a podcast sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries, the world's first ministry serving the white-collar justice community. I'm Jeff Grant, co-founder and your host. I served almost 14 months in a federal prison for a white-collar crime I committed when I was a lawyer, so I know that it's the isolation that kills us and the solution is in community. So let's get started. Welcome to White Collar Week. Um, This is a very special podcast we have today. I have two really good buddies of mine, Trevor Shevin and Joshua Cagney, who are both substance abuse and recovery specialists, each in their own way. I've known both of them a long time, and I'm a great admirer of both of them. Um, I'm going to let them each kind of tell their stories, and then we'll get into conversation. They're both gifted speakers, and they, um, and they have a heart for uh, recovery. So uh, why don't we start with you, Trevor, and uh, very excited. Actually, why don't you say hello to each other, and then we'll kind of get into it. Hey, Trevor, it's nice to meet you. How are you doing? Good, good. Nice to meet you, too. All right, Trevor, the, the floor is yours. <clears throat> sure. So you want me to just give a little background? Yeah. Um, so, okay. Uh, so, you know, I, I'll self-disclose, as I tend to do uh, quite a bit. Uh, you know, I, um, I'm 48 years old. Uh, I've been in, uh, in recovery for quite some time. Um, and, um, uh, but I, I also uh, say tongue-in-cheek and ask people not to hold it against me, but I, I am a, a recovering Wall Street guy. Um, I, I spent over uh, uh, 10 years on Wall Street. I have an MBA. Um, and um, as what you probably, not probably, I think uh, would be considered a high-functioning uh, alcoholic and, and addict. And um, <clears throat> so a little bit of background. Um, um, uh, I think, you know, it's good to know sort of the, the story that sort of leads up to it a little bit. So, you know, I grew up in, a, in an alcoholic household. My father was a was an alcoholic and, and a rageaholic. And, um, you know, uh, from a very young age, I struggled with self-esteem um, and anxiety and depression. Um, and uh, I decided to um, uh, uh, pretty early on push away from that. And, and I did fairly well in school. I did well in sports. I played sports through through college. Um, uh, uh, I, I basically did everything I could, uh, very fear-based success, uh, ego-based success, trying to get away from, from that. And, and uh, um, um, essentially spent a life trying to put these masks on to appear a certain way because I felt so vulnerable. 
uh, to the world and, um, and did a pretty good job of that. Um, uh, to kind of fast forward a little bit, um, um, you know, trauma is a pretty big uh, theme through most of my life. Um, and I think at the epicenter of my, my um, the manifestation being, you know, the, the alcohol and drugs that I wound up getting into, I was never arrested, never lost a job because of, uh, you know, drinking or alcohol. I, I worked diligently to make sure that didn't happen. Um, things kind of culminated. I, I was at the World Trade Center when, when 9-11 happened um, and, and uh, saw some things, obviously, that, that um, you know, no one should have to uh, see. And, and, um, and I think my addiction escalated after that. And uh, long story short, I wound up um, in, in, my, in my 30s, early 30s, getting into recovery. And um, uh, um, I, uh, I, I was very, very blessed in that, you know, but when I got in, I was done and, and not to sound overly dramatic, but I was at a point in my life where either I needed to figure out another way to live, um, or, um, I didn't want to live. I wasn't actively suicidal, but, um, certainly, uh, had ideations. And, um, and so I was, uh, all in and, um, uh, in, in my first year of recovery, uh, very engaged in therapy, uh, self-help groups, things like that. Um, and um, about a year into my own journey, uh, I was divorced at the time, um, living in the West Village, uh, no kids. Um, and I sort of had this existential, like, you know, uh, all the masks that I put on, I had to take off. Some of them I had to rip off or got pulled off by therapists and getting back to my authentic self. And, and um and I had this existential decision, like I wanted to do something with more purpose and meaning. The field that I'm in today back then was a lot more uh, like Spartan and I guess innocent in some ways. Um, it's gotten a little saturated over time. There's a lot of big private equity money coming into it and whatnot. But back then I got a lot of opportunities to talk to people just as a civilian um, who was on the other side of the fence. And, you know, so guys on Wall Street uh, might talk to me and whatnot. I really enjoyed it, but I had no clinical training. So I, I decided a year in that I wanted to go and get some clinical training. I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know if I was going to try and hang up a shingle in Manhattan, um, uh, become a therapist. Uh, and several things transpired. Um, um, I wound up actually becoming a, a, um, a certified interventionist and also started doing what's called clinical intensive case management and mentoring and monitoring and counseling with, with individuals. And, uh, I was kind of a unicorn back then. Um, there's a lot more of me, I put in quotes today, than there was back then. So I, I got very lucky when I got into the field because it gave me a lot of opportunities that I might not have today. Um, um, so I worked, I became very well known working with other uh, executives on, on Wall Street and, uh, and you know, attorneys and things kind of uh, in a good way snowballed. Um, I was partners with a few people over the years and then eventually started my own firm back in 2016, um, you know, called Sterling Recovery. And we do interventions and work with individuals all around the country, um, helping them navigate through uh, and, and, and around the world, actually, at this point. Um, I'm, a, uh, I'm on the board of the National Council of Alcohol and Drug Dependency in Westchester and, um, and a few other things. I, I really like to do uh, pro bono work and give back. Um, uh, but we... Um, um, you know, we, we are a, a small company. I've even been asked to be bought out and I'm a tiny company on a relative basis. That's what the fields turn into, but we, um, we don't advertise or market ourselves. It's all referrals and 
I try and base my personal and professional life around integrity, which I define, you know, as doing the next right thing, you know, especially when no one's looking. And um, and it's, it's worked out really well. So, you know, I, I've um, um, really had a, you know, um, I really, I think, found my calling over the last decade plus, and it's just been a, a tremendous journey and meeting wonderful people like you, Jeff, and uh, and um, and so on and so forth. So I guess that's kind of the, the quick down and dirty of, uh, of me and my background. Yeah, thanks, Trevor. Um, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into a lot more of it during this hour. Um, sure. I, 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 feel, I feel so connected to you and your family and, and your whole story. And, um, and it's, uh, it just feels great to have you here, you know. Um, so thank you. Uh, Joshua, same. I'm, I'm in meetings with both of you guys all the time. So, uh, Joshua, why don't you tell your story, and then we'll and I'll ask a a, uh, a question of both of you, and we can kind of throw it back and forth. Sure. It, again, it's a it's a pleasure to be here, and Trevor. Honestly, I, I appreciate you sharing your story. Um, not not just telling it, but being pretty transparent and, and vulnerable in that it, it means a lot. Um, so my my story is follows some of the same paths and, and tracks that Trevor's did. Uh, I grew up in, in Chicago and, and outside of Washington, D.C., uh, where, where family is located. Uh, and I was a growing alcoholic probably from the first time I can remember and in, in before I took my first drink or drug. I just, like Trevor, I, I remember struggling well with the, the feelings of inadequacy, inferiority. Um, anxiety, depression, and not having the intellectual or emotional skills to really put my finger on what it was that I felt, just knowing that I felt different and didn't feel right. If you had asked me what right was, I couldn't answer that either. I just knew that I wasn't there. When I took my first drink, I'm not sure if that went away or I just ceased to care whether I, it, it just put me in a position where I no longer cared about the fact that I felt different, that I felt inferior, that I felt uncomfortable, that I struggled with any social or emotional anxieties. And that started a, a pretty good run that, that ran for the better part of 15 or 16 years. Um, that was certainly progressive in, in its nature, not just in terms of the intensity and, and the number of times that I drank or, or used drugs, but in the way that it became a pervasive part of my life and started to become cancerous and, and infect my relationships, my professional abilities, my personal management abilities, uh, to say nothing of, of my health. When I was 30 years old uh, in 2003, I it was a relatively typical occasion where I was watching a football game and drinking, went out to get some food at halftime and, and never made it home. I, I caused a car wreck and someone was killed. So I, I spent the better part of uh, eight years after that in, in prison for a charge of uh, involuntary manslaughter in the Commonwealth of Virginia. So I think I, I understood relatively early that what I had been doing wasn't working. Um, not just in, in the impact that I had on the people around me, but in the fact that I, I was genuinely and sincerely unhappy with who I was and not comfortable looking myself in the mirror. 
making some decisions about how to change that included engaging in a program of recovery and that that helped me personally at least come to terms with who I was and, and feel some degree of empowerment about what I could do to, to address that. But also changing the professional career or the professional direction my life had taken. Uh, I made the decision relatively early on in my incarceration that I wanted to be engaged working with other addicts and alcoholics, that I wanted to be able to affect them in a way that didn't rely just on my experience, my personal experience, but relied on a professional acumen as well. So following my incarceration, I, I went back to graduate school and did my graduate work in uh, psychology, started a postgraduate program in clinical mental health counseling, um, and, and now have, have switched uh, my postgraduate work to uh, organizational leadership with a specific focus on mental health. Professionally, that, that culminated in, in doing some behavioral and mental health work, uh, specifically with addicts and alcoholics in the Virginia Department of Corrections and local correctional facilities in Fairfax County and Loudoun County. Um, in addition to working with people who are dealing with drunk in public or simple possession or DWI in uh, the District of Columbia. The mental health piece transitioned to a point where I, I began working with um, adolescents and juveniles dealing with some behavioral issues, but also with some pretty significant personality and mood disorders, ranging from schizophrenia to Down syndrome, uh, striking the autism spectrum, and uh, eventually was able to, to segue my career back into being more focused on, on addiction and alcoholism by joining some, some colleagues a few years ago and opening an intensive outpatient program specifically focused on adults uh, just outside of Washington, D.C. So our, a lot of the work that we do, similar to, to what Trevor, I think, has, has had to find in terms of what's beneficial to his clients is triage work needs to be 90% of the game to understand exactly how you meet the needs of, of the clients and their families. Uh, and, and sometimes we're, we're the appropriate avenue to do that. Sometimes we're not. So we, we need to know that not just our limitations, but ultimately maintain a focus on client-centered care. And that means bringing the resources to bear that are most appropriate in, in that specific case. And in that regard, like Trevor spoke about pro bono work being one of the things that he enjoys most, I, I love being in a position where I can work with families and, and lay out options for them to see what is the best fit and, and figure out ideally what works best for them and then walk them through that process and maintain that, that outreach uh, relationship six months down the road, a year down the road and, and help them sort of grow through that process. Um, it's not a revenue stream, obviously for us, but it is something that, that I, I think we take a great deal of pride and enjoy doing. Uh, so at this point I am, I am divorced and I continue to work a program of recovery. Um, I don't have any kids either. And I, at the ripe old age of 47, um, I'm not looking to have kids either. I'm happy with, with the family that, that I have around me of, of friends and loved ones that, that mean the world to me. And, and I'm happy to count you among them, Jeff. Thanks, Joshua. That, that was beautiful. Um, you know, I, I came to know you both 
um, really in recovery, either recovery from substance abuse, recovery from criminal justice issues. But all three of us ended up as professionals. And how do you navigate that? Because it feels like, to me at least, that recovery is a very, very intensely personal experience. You know, it's something that I'm going through and it's something within my spiritual practice and I've learned how to navigate that. And yet now what I have to do is I have to pull back a little bit and be of service to others and, and be kind of dispassionate in a, in, a, in a way, kind of know where I am within their trajectory. So how, how do you handle that? All right, Trevor. Okay, so, so it's a great point. And um, so a philosophy that I have is I, I never want the clients we work with to feel like we're, we're like, you know, tugging at them or pushing them. Metaphorically, I want, I want them to feel like yeah, my arms around them and I'm walking with them, not that I'm going to enable them and, and I'm going to guide them. And um, I think it's so important. And, you know, as a owner of a, of a company, of a business in this field, you know, one of the um, most important attributes when I look to bring people on board is how open-minded they are to re what recovery is and, and where someone's at. Um, people get very, very passionate. You know, recovery has saved my life. That's the way I perceive it. Uh, and so, but that doesn't mean my way is the the only way uh, to go about uh, doing that. And and um, um, and you know, as uh, you know, it's almost like uh, the cliche that you know, the more the older I get, the more experience I get, the less I know. You know, and um, I I think it's it's very very important to have um, uh, open mind, open perspective, um, but boundaries and uh, and. Um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but uh, you know that's that's what came to mind when 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 you said that is just being able to um, um, uh, understand the bigger picture uh, as long as we're on the right trajectory. No, it's not a straight line, um, uh, and um, uh, and 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 um, uh, you know this scares uh, clients. Well, I think it scares clients. Maybe it doesn't when I tell them, you know. For me, what's been the biggest part of, I think, some of my success is, is um, you know, what got me into so much trouble in my life was I was so attached to outcomes and results. I was a people pleaser. I cared what everyone thought about me. I still care what everyone thinks about me. Don't get me wrong. But, but um, I've been able to, through, through my own recovery and through, you know, trying to develop some level of a spiritual practice, um, learn to... Uh, really try and stay out of outcomes and results and focus on keeping my side of the street clean. And so I take that approach in my personal and professional life with clients. I know where I want them to be. I know what the bigger picture is. I just need to focus on um, the next right thing with them. Uh, and, um, and, and I'm amazed sometimes that even when it's not going exactly the way Trevor wants it to, the outcomes can be pretty uh, phenomenal as long as I have integrity with what I'm doing uh, and, um, and, and, and boundaries with what I'm doing as well. So, um, that, that's sort of my perspective of that. Mm. Yeah. Joshua. I, I, I agree with, with a lot of what Trevor has said. I, I do think that it's important to understand the nature of boundaries in our lives, at least in terms of motivation. I know that in my own recovery, my personal recovery, it took me some time to recognize that a process of recovery 
sooner or later has really very little to do with the use of drugs or alcohol because drugs and alcohol really had very little to do with the effect that it had on me. It had to do with what it did for me emotionally and, and mentally, right? So by that, I ultimately mean that there's a situation sooner or later that we run into where we recognize that continuing to be in, re in recovery isn't because I'm worried about drinking or, or using drugs again. It's about the things that I do and engage in in my life today that provide me some degree of meaning and hope, some degree of personal satisfaction. Really the antithesis of what, why I started drinking to begin with. You know, the feeling of anxiety, the feeling of inferiority, the feeling of not being comfortable in my skin. And when I was 14, I lacked the ability to recognize that I had some empowerment to change that that there were things that I could do, some esteemable things that could affect how I felt about myself and the energy that I put into my work, whether that be mowing the lawn, whether that be working with a client, whether that be reading a book, it doesn't really matter. So the, the reality today for me is that making a decision to start working with people, regardless of what the circumstances are, whether they're dealing with some kind of mental health issue, whether it's a family member, whether it's someone in the criminal justice system, or someone dealing with addiction, the, it's where I choose to invest my energy that has to be, I hate, it. it would be a mistake to say that mental health clinicians and people who work in treatment of any mental health issue, whether it be addiction um, or, or even social work, do it from a sense of altruism. Sooner or later, we do it because it provides us a benefit because we feel good about what we're doing with our emotional energy and our time. It is, it is the opportunity to have at least a micro effect on someone's life in a way that hopefully makes their world a little brighter and, and a little more hopeful. Um, I can't imagine doing anything else with my life. And I, there's nothing that I'll ever do again professionally or personally that, that provides me that sort of pleasure and, and emotional growth, spiritual growth. You know, it strikes me that we, we all have a very similar um, connection, um, mission, calling. Um, we all, and, and it's very tactile. It's something you can you know, really feel. And yet, we're now in a situation in the world where we can't be one-on-one -on -one with people or we can't touch them or feel them in, um, I mean that metaphorically, but the, it's important to be able to have that connection and relate to people. And, and um, I know I've, uh, I go to uh, recovery meetings with both of you on, on Zoom, for example, and um, there's some great things about that, but I've never really discussed it with either either of you what what it means uh, clinically or what it means in terms of of the people that we're helping and uh, are they are they are they uh, are they falling through our, our 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 grasp are they are we are we able to do our jobs are are people suffering more are are they not reaching out for help is this um, it's a compound question but you, you know what I'm getting at that now everybody's isolated and the isolation is, is what destroys people. So how are you dealing with that? Mm. Do you want me to go first? Yeah, sure. Please. Yeah. Well, it's a great question. Uh, 
you know, it's ironic. So I, I was supposed to give a, a lecture in San Diego um, the first week of April. And uh, they turned it into, and this is when Zoom was just getting off the ground. And it was a big deal. They had, you know, NFL players that were going to be there. And it was a whole big to do. And um, and I was going to, my, my topic was on interventions. And it was for professionals in the field. And um, uh, so they, instead, you know, like last minute, they said, we're doing it. We're doing it on Zoom. Um, there's going to be a thousand people watching on Zoom. And we want you to do it on, um, the, you know, basically the new normal. And the new normal was like two weeks old at that point. So um, I was, you know, I'm very fortunate to have some really wonderful colleagues around the country that that we collaborate and talk, and and uh, it's it's amazing uh, what I've been able to come across. Um, and you know, a lot, you know, friends for lifetime, the the people I get to uh, engage with. Um, but what you know, so for me, again, a, a little bit maybe of an overshare. You know, I'm I'm what you would call uh, an, an adult child of an alcoholic, which for those who don't know means um, uh, as a child, I had an alcoholic parent. And um, and sometimes I didn't know what the evening was going to be like until, you know, how hard the door slammed when my dad got home. And so it's it's uh, it's a blessing and a curse, but I'm always very keenly aware of, of my surroundings. And, and I think what makes me a pretty good interventionist is I read people and energy really well. I can walk into a room and I can almost feel exactly what's going on without anyone even saying anything. Zoom <laughs> really uh, takes the air out of that for me. Um, and um, uh, in fact, you know, a little anecdote. Um, so I've been doing interventions via Zoom because we've been forced to. I've been a lot of what I'm doing is triage, coaching families. Um, you know, I just want to say something to what Joshua said, which I really that was poignant, you know, this is a family disease and not just because there's a genetic disposition to it, but because of the ripple effect it has on the entire family. And, um, and so a lot of what I've been doing too, because of limitations, not just on engaging with people and getting them into treatment, uh, but also the options for treatment given what's going on. Uh, so if someone doesn't quite have a needle in their arm per se, meaning, um, you know, that, that, if there's a way to navigate and coach through it until things start to open up more, I've been doing a lot of that. But I did an intervention and a woman um, who we were intervening on uh, looked really sad and down, like surprisingly so, because I, I do a very non-judgmental, no shaming, no blaming. Um, uh, it's based off the Johnson model. Some people call it a love first approach and it's um, highly effective. And, and, and Quite frankly, I don't like the word intervention because the associations people have with it, what they see on TV and the Sopranos and whatnot. But this is, um, uh, I, you know, but but um, uh, it, 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 I, I, I don't think you're ever going to really intellectually get someone in to get help. You have to go for their heart. So that's what we look to do. So over Zoom, um, this woman who we're intervening on was, you know, a lot of lovely things were being said. And she was looking down like this. And I thought she was really sad. And, you know, um, I'll say her name was Mary, but it wasn't Mary. You know, I said, Mary, are, are you okay? And she looked up to me, like kind of puzzled. And she said, what, what do you mean? And I said, you, you look really sad that your, your head's down. She goes, oh, no. And she pokes her, picks her foot up. She goes, um, I, I see, you know, I need a, I need a pedicure. I'm overdue. <laughs> so she was just looking at her toes. And like, to me, I thought like, you know, I'm trying to read what's going on. Had I been in the room with her, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah. So what's happened over time since, um, you know, the middle of March when all this went down, I've gotten much better 
at, at reading cues and whatnot uh, via Zoom, but it's been um, it's been a, a learning curve, and it isn't quite the same um, as being face to face. That being said, there's a silver lining too: the the uh, ability to get in front of so many different people mm. all around the country, all around the world, is out of you know without having to get on a plane um, to do meetings. Everyone is. I know people who still don't know how to text, like, you know, elderly that know how to Zoom because they want to see their grandkids. So th this has been, you know, phenomenal from that yeah. perspective. Um, but it's, um, there is a learning, I'm, I'm going on, so I'll, I'll stop. But there, there's a learning curve to it. And um, uh, um, uh, there are, you know, nuances that are very helpful, but, you know, things that obviously are obstacles and I personally can't wait till things open up again. Yeah, what about you, Joshua? You know, I, I agree. I, I think that there are silver linings to be had in this as, as we try and understand what personal engagement looks like in, in a world where we need to be sensitive to pandemics. Um, I, I have two thoughts. One is, in the beginning of the pandemic, my colleagues and I, I were very unsure about how this was going to affect the landscape. What we found very quickly was that people who were skating by, self-managing their addiction or their mental health issues, suddenly faced this wall of isolation mm. and just took a total nosedive. Mm. So the, the people that might have been appropriate for outpatient care, working with a therapist, or even intensive outpatient work, coming to group and individual counseling, within a matter of weeks were needed long-term residential and inpatient care. And that was incredibly difficult to watch, not just for the nature of how that impacted clients and patients, but how, as, as Trevor pointed out, how that ripple effect manifested in really some profound, horrific consequences for family and employers and communities. Overdoses that resulted in death went up dramatically in, in clients that, that we were working with even tangentially. Um, from a more personal perspective, you know, the, the question of what this really looks like, how does isolation affect mental health and, and substance abuse? Fortunate, unfortunately, there's, there's just an incredible hole in terms of the research and, and enough of a hole that in early March, I, I started speaking with uh, the, the people on, on my dissertation board and made a decision to change my entire dissertation to look at the relationship between anxiety, substance abuse, and isolation. Mm. And isolation is being very different than, than solitude, but isolation is something that, that is forced upon us rather than something that we, we choose to seek for the sake of meditation mm -hmm. or, or what have you. So the, the reality is that Addiction and a lot of mental health disorders related to mood and personality disorders tend to want us to be isolated. They, they tend to want us to feel separate from and then make a physical decision that we are going to isolate ourselves away from family, away from friends, away from coworkers, away from society. So this forced isolation all of a sudden became an easy way for all of those mental health issues and, and substance abuse issues left untreated to become exponentially greater and, and exacerbated to the point where it wasn't just unmanageable, it was horrific in terms of how it, it affected people. 
it, it's been really tragic to watch. I, I don't think that we understand enough out of the net effects of it long term, which is why I wanted to do my dissertation work on it. But more than that, I, from what I understand, having spoken with people who actively work in FEMA and the CDC, is it's certainly reasonable to expect that the way viruses spread these days, because we are, particularly in the United States, where we have such large pockets of densely populated areas, we're not as spread out as, as some other societies, particularly in Europe and, and more third world countries. The way things spread, we, we, the new normal will include some piece of how we become sensitive to spreading germs and viruses and how we maintain personal space and, and what have you. Mm -hmm. So we, we do need to figure out what isolation and what solitude looks like and how that affects not just mental health issues and substance abuse issues, but how we as clinicians need to be able to address that and support clients and families through that. As, as Trevor pointed out, it completely changed, you know, how he needed to work with clients and families. For the better part of three months, we were exclusively seeing clients through Zoom uh, for groups and individual counseling and, and uh, med consults for, for our psychiatrist in-house. I went to each client's house at least once a week mm. under the guise of doing a urinalysis or home check or something specifically because I wanted to make sure that they were having physical contact with someone, mm. that they were able to see someone in their space and not feel so isolated. Whether it had any appreciable effect, I don't know. Uh, we, we certainly had, had, a, had a couple of uh, challenging times. But the nature of what it felt for me personally was was significantly different. Um, that that's a really long answer to your simple question. I, I think the most important takeaway from my perspective is simply we don't know yet. Uh, we we need to learn more about that to see what what the long term effects of, of isolation are on, on how we we deal with mental illness and substance abuse. I, I've spent. I wanted to add real quick, Jeff, right. is, um, that came to mind. What's happened a lot too is there's been a tremendous amount of exposure uh, to families. You know, I, I'm in the you know in the Manhattan area, if you will, where the epicenter was at least uh, up up till recently, and um, and and so uh, husbands and wives and you know parents, kids were ripped out of school, uh, seniors in college and whatnot, uh, with with habits that were very uh, exposed to their parents and 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 and. Uh, you know, um, most uh, uh, people who are active in their addiction have, have at least a double life that they're hiding with their drinking, maybe even a triple or quadruple. Sure. The exposure has been phenomenal. You know, I say kind of tongue in cheek, but you know, two industries that are sort of recession proof are the substance abuse field and drug dealing. <laughs> and, um, sure. you know, and, and so um, um, a lot like to what I was saying, like triage with families trying to figure things out has been. Um, uh, pretty fascinating and uh there's been a real uptick in in, in calls uh for help so yeah you know for me it, it, it feels like a lot of things that have been uh in my life that have been revol revolving around me have come together in terms of their understanding and empathy i'll tell you what i mean it's hard it was hard for me for all these years to explain what it feels like 
to be in captivity, you know, or to be um, in that kind of isolation or to be cut off from loved ones or to, to have to wait in line for things or not have access to things, it, it, the kind of experience that people are having now. And, and at the same time, there's kind of a calm in the middle of, the, of that space in, in, in understanding on some level that the illusion of control is, is gone. Like there's, there's nothing that we can really control and either that terrifies you or that makes you really comforted or maybe both. But so how are you guys dealing with that? And what are you seeing in the people that you work with? And is it, is it, is it causing more things? Is it, is, is it helping more things? What's going on? Um, I mean, I, I think, uh, I try and view things as optimistically as optimistically as I can, at least for others, not always for myself. Um, you know, so it's an opportunity to practice a lot of what we, you know, you kind of go from the, the the classroom or you know the laboratory to the real world with mm -hmm. um, this this lack of feeling, you know, a sense of control, this unknown of you know how long is this going to go, how it's affecting everyone, the ripple effect. Um, I mean, coupled with you know, I don't want to get into politics or whatnot, but everything that's going on in the world, you know, uh, compounding what we're seeing, um, you know, to what Joshua had said, you know, this addiction is a disease and it's, it's more, uh, about, you know, how, how I think, uh, that, you know, the, the alcohol or the drugs or whatever the maladaptive coping mechanism mechanism is, it can be gambling, it could be sex, it can be Skittles, it can be anything. It's that inability to process through our emotions like quote unquote normal people who have yet to meet. But, you know, so we look to anesthetize how we're feeling. And, and the average person who struggles with addiction, believe it or not, has a higher IQ than the average person who doesn't. I like to hang my hat on that. We tend to be a lot more sensitive. And so when you're acutely aware of how you're feeling, and there's a high correlation with trauma and mental health issues all along the spectrum, um, you know, they get exacerbated in times like, like we're in right now, unprecedented times. And so... Um, uh, I try and view it as an opportunity to, to practice what's going on. Um, I think, um, there, there has, you know, while people have been isolated in some ways, you know, especially with zoom and other, um, modalities, people have been more connected in other ways too. I have a lot of clients who are very averse to certain types of, um, uh, you know, components of their recovery plan and, and, you know, um, self-help meetings and things like that, that have gotten exposed to it and really actually enjoy them now. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's just uh, um, a, a way to, in, in real time, help people process through their anxieties and uh, that, that they're going through and, um, and, and trying to normalize it. Joshua. I think, I think that Trevor makes a good point. It, there are some interesting impacts that, that it's had, you know, on, on all of us on, on personal and professional levels from from the perspective, I, I think that it's really made me second guess anything that I believe to be true about how people would manage themselves facing a crisis. Mm. Any, any expectation that I had about how any particular client or patient would face this adversity, I, I have not been wrong 1% of the time. Um, whether I thought that they were going to do well or not well, it really didn't matter. They they seem to surprise me 100% of the time. So the, the reality for me, 
is I have, as Trevor had talked about, stepping back from the results business, I've stepped back from the expectations business, mm. or at least made the effort to do that, and simply tried to, to focus on understanding what it is that the people need and whether or not I'm, I'm in a position to be able to offer them to, in, in supporting that. I don't know that we have any particular understanding of, of how we're going to be able to do that long-term simply because we don't know what the world is going to look yeah. like long-term. It, it's difficult to sort of perceive. Certainly, I've noticed, as, as Trevor alluded to, there's, there is definitely an increase in sensitivity simply because the way we have become so isolated has made us incredibly externally sensitive. So people... I, I spoke with a colleague, this wasn't even a, a patient, but this was a, a mental health clinician who has been doing this a lot longer than I have, and, and she's very well respected in her field, and, and I was talking to her the other day because she too uh, is single and lives alone, and I, I was a little concerned about her. Um, she's seeing all of her clients through Zoom. I asked her how she was doing, and the first thing that she said was, "I, you know, I'm, I'm just so upset by by all of the, the demonstrations and the violence and what have you. And I just thought it's nothing that's affecting her personally. It's nothing that she's seeing outside of her window. It is, it is the fact that she has become so sensitive mm. to things that are going on in the world, regardless of what's happening in her living room. And I, I don't think that she's an isolated example of that. I, I think all of us have, have sort of increased our sensitivity to, to world events simply because there is not a whole lot going on in our living room or our kitchen or our offices. Um, whether that's part of the new normal, I, I, I don't know. But I, I do think that, that we need to figure out how we can better understand how to address that because the reality is that that's a very easy way for someone struggling with mental health or addiction to cope with what's going on. Turning that focus outwards and, and talking about everything that's going on outside and losing all of that focus and attention that really needs to be centered on, on what's going inside. How am I feeling spiritually? How am I feeling emotionally? Um, it, it's striking that balance certainly so that we're not so caught up in the externalities that we lose sight of whether or not that really affects us internally or personally, if that makes sense. Uh, before, before this, um, before we start recording, we, uh, the three of us had a conversation about what, what do we uh, want to accomplish in this podcast? And what I told both of you uh, was that um, my hope is that um, somebody who's uh, freaking out or, um, or their spouse, or their family member, or their friend, um, can identify somehow with some of the things that we're talking about. Because we know that um, people who are enmeshed in these problems, they tend to kind of maybe at some point be up at night and surfing the internet, trying to find out what they can find out. Um, and what I would really want is someone to be able to send them a link and say, hey, you got to you got to listen to this podcast because there's people out there that can help. So, um, and I, actually, I think that what I said was uh, I wanted someone to walk across a restaurant and tell someone that I know these guys, but I'm not sure how, if we're going to be in restaurants real soon or not. So what, what's the takeaway? What's the thing that each of you wants that person to say to the other person? Hey, um, you should hear this guy, Trevor Shevin, or you should hear this guy, Joshua Cagney. 
there's there's something that that um, resonates that or, or for me I think will resonate with you. So I want you to watch the podcast. So what what's the thing? Um, yeah, so I'll I'll continue the greetings. Uh, I'll go first. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Please, by all means. It's not an easy one. This is the billboard. You got to go for it. If you want to go, please, by all means. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I guess you know. Okay, so I think here's what I would say is. Um, I heard early on that, you know, addiction and alcoholism is, uh, is an equal opportunity destroyer. Right. And so, um, um, you know, I, I think, uh, when I was growing up, I thought, you know, someone who was an alcoholic was, you know, you were probably, you know, homeless on the street with the brown bag or, you know, doing it with a squeegee, or sometimes it would be, you know, uh, uh, you know, someone's dad with a flask in their trench coat, you know, that was sort of yelling at the refs and embarrassing all the kids or whatnot. What I didn't realize was, like I said, it, it, it's, um, um, it's how we think. Uh, the reason why we, we drank or drugged or whatever it was, was to quell that noise in our head, you know, the, uh, um, and, um, and to try and get comfortable in our own skin. Um, I think uh, uh, that stigma of, of what's, what an alcoholic or an addict is, while we've come, um, you know, uh, we've really come a long way with that, you know, uh, people are still surprised when, when they find out I'm in recovery. You know, I was a, an athlete through college, an MBA, Wall Street guy, uh, had a great apartment, uh, married, you know, everything looked pretty good on paper. Um, but I was a complete mess inside. I mean, by the end of it, um, I remember looking around and, and thought, you know, to myself, I, you know, I thought all these things that I, I tried to accumulate would make me happy. And I was absolutely miserable inside. And so, um, there was this sort of, you know, you hear the term soul hole. I had this gaping soul hole that I just couldn't fill. Uh, and, um, it wasn't just, you know, I know people who are heavy drinkers who aren't alcoholics, but I know also people who drink just a few glasses of wine, but they leave their kids, you know, on the washing machine. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's about what makes someone really, you know, I could do a three hour assessment on someone, but it's really like, are you experiencing consequences as a, as a direct or indirect result of your, your drinking or drugging or what, or gambling or whatever it might be? And, you know, you still continue to engage in that maladaptive coping mechanism. Most people, when they touch a hot stove, they pull their hand away. Uh, we tend to uh, go to the source of pain looking for comfort, whether it's the drug or the drink or the relationship or the job. Uh, we're so uncomfortable in our own skin that it almost feels normal to be uncomfortable. And, and you don't have to feel that way or be that way. Uh, and so, um, you know, what I'd want someone to take away is not, you know, uh, the sh you know, and, and we come in with such shame, right? Like, you know, guilt is feeling bad about things we, we've done specifically. Shame is feeling bad about who I am as a person. And we manufacture our own shame because when our brain is hijacked by this disease, our behaviors don't match who we are as a person, our, our integrity, our, our ethics. And, and, and so, um, uh, so that gap between what we're doing behaviorally and who we, who we are just we, we crank shame into our lives. And so it makes it very, very hard to enter recovery because of how we feel about ourselves. And we might not even feel worthy of, um, of, 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 of help. And, um, and, and that's so not true. Uh, so what I'd want someone to take away is not just, you know, what activities they're doing, 
um, illicit drugs they're taking or behaviors, uh, how they're acting out. It's um, if you're feeling off inside um, and, uh, and, and, and you almost have that feeling if you felt the way I felt, you would do what I do too. Um, that to me is addiction, you know, and only, only someone who really uh, has, has, has experienced that can, can really fully understand that. Um, I think you can study it and, you know, but if that's how you feel inside, um, uh, there, there are so many opportunities in so many different ways and it doesn't have to be, uh, a certain way that you might not feel comfortable, uh, getting help. Um, there's so many different options. And, um, uh, and so, um, I would just hope that someone would keep an open mind to explore what that might be. Uh, like I said, in the beginning, uh, you know, find what path works for you. But um, uh, to to get on the on the right path and, and, and start that, that life that that um, you know to build that life that's really worth living. Um, so you know that's um, that's what I'd hope someone would take away. That's beautiful, yeah, Joshua. I I agree. I, I think that Trevor made made an excellent point. There there is you know any any kind of mental health disorder left untreated creates a disconnect between our image of ourselves and the reality, you know, we, we confuse with how we feel about ourselves with self-worth and, and we really, none of us, even, even the most healthy, well-adjusted individuals around do not have an objective feel for who we are as, as individuals and, and who, what our inherent value is. We, we are our own worst critics in that regard. And it, that's why we rely on, on loving and, and trusting relationships in our lives to help us provide a mirror about who we are and, and where we stand in other people's lives. Um, I would, I would go a bit further. I would go a step further than, than Trevor went and, and maybe be a little more succinct and perhaps often a cautionary tale when it comes to what the takeaway from this, this conversation could be. Trevor and I were talking before we started recording and, and we agreed that one of our primary concerns and gripes about the, the industry of treatment and mental health is that it's become rife with, fraud and corruption and and a lot of that comes from venture capital investment creating um overnight rehab and treatment centers that that promise cures that are are far from reliable they're certainly not clinically based and um i i hate to say it but they even include clinicians that do not have clients best interests at heart um I'm, I'm usually pretty good about calling those, those places and those people out by name, though I'm, I'm not going to do that here. Um, if, but being in a position, relying on Trevor's advice to take advantage of the opportunity to rely on even a grain of sand of hope and making a decision to reach out for help is absolutely critical. A hundred percent of us will, will reach out to people that we know and trust it and, at least feel comfortable confiding in, you know, something that we feel embarrassed by, that we shouldn't be embarrassed by, but we feel embarrassed and intimidated by anyway. Making that decision to reach out to someone that you trust is absolutely critical. But then going a step further and being critical of where, what kind of options you explore together to see what makes the most sense. Um, be exhaustive in your research. Uh, please do not make the mistake of thinking that because an organization has a URL like bestrehab.com is, is going to provide the best solution, right? 
Um, look for people who, where you can get recommendations from people that you know and trust. Uh, it, it's, in, it's important to know that the person that you're trusting your life with or your loved one's life with is someone that has the same interest in, in your future that you do. Um, and and I, I'm sorry to say that that's not always the case, unfortunately. Some of it is, is very revenue and, and profit-driven. As regrettable as that is, we, we shouldn't play that game with, with people's physical health or mental health, but we do. Um, so be, be exhaustive in that search. Be critical in your, in your thinking about where you go for help and rely on the people around you to help you through that process. That's why we have those loving relationships. It, it's to trust the people around us to help us through difficult, challenging times uh, and, and let them help be your advocate. I think that's probably the most important thing I want people to take away from this. Now, I, I have this conversation with people almost every day. They're um, they're calling usually because they're looking for some kind of spiritual component in their lives. That's kind of why they come to a ministry. But um, I'm telling them all the time: this you are in trauma. You are at your most vulnerable, and this is when you have to do deep due diligence on. Whoever you want to do business with, whoever, if you're, if you're just home from prison or you're just out of a rehab and you need money and people are going to potentially throw opportunities at you and, or not, but this is, don't try to solve temporary problems like cash flow with solutions that could have long-term repercussions. And we've all suffered that. All three of us have suffered consequences of behavior that had we known better, we we probably would have behaved differently. Um, thank you both. Um, you know, beautiful, beautiful souls, and doing uh, really doing great work. Uh, why don't we just go around one more time, just uh, remind people how to reach you, and um, and then we'll close it off. Trevor, please. Sure. Um, sure. So you know, I'll um, I'll, I'll give out both my personal cell number and, and my email address. If anyone has any questions or anything, I'm always happy to help. Uh, so I can be reached. My, my direct cell is area code 917-653-3899. And you can also email me at uh, Trevor, T-R-E-V-O-R, at sterlingrecovery.com, S-T-E-R-L-I-N-G, recovery.com. Um, and, um, you know, any, anything I can do to help, um, uh, like I said, you know, um, I don't want you to feel like if you reach out to me, um, there's any motive other than just, you know, want, wanting to, uh, 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 give you some guidance. Um, so, um, thank you, Jeff. Yeah. Thank you, Trevor. Joshua. Uh, I'm happy to do that as well. My, my personal cell phone number is area code 703-397-7680. And my email address is my first name, dot last name, Joshua, J-O-S-H-U-A, dot Cagney, C-A-G-N-E-Y, at NPRecovery.com. It's N is in November, P is in Papa, recovery.com for mm -hmm. New Paradigm Recovery. I, I do think uh, Trevor, I, I think, exemplifies an important takeaway from this. And that simply is that the people that have your best interest at heart are, are the people who will offer to help you regardless of whether it provides them any personal benefit or not. Uh, I, I think that's an important note 
and that I, I appreciate and respect, Trevor. I, I value that a lot myself, and I, I value that a lot when I see it in other people. So anyone who has any questions or problems uh, and they're not sure what to do, uh, I'm, I'm always happy to, to talk with folks and, and try and, and help provide some light. Trevor, and, go ahead, Trevor. No, I just say thank you. I appreciate that, and I feel the same. Yeah, so uh, Trevor, Joshua, thank you for being uh, with me tonight. Really beautiful episode. Um, I think we did a great job for people tonight. Um, more information about you both will be in the show notes, and this will be available in a few days on our website, prisons.org, and on YouTube in probably half a dozen platforms. So I'll, uh, I'll put it out there, and uh, let's hope that we... Uh, the people who need us find us um, because that would be a blessing in this. Thank you both. Thank you, Jeff. All right. Thank you for joining us on White Collar Week, sponsored by Progressive Prison Ministries. You can learn more about us on our website, prisonist.org. That's prisonist like feminist. And please remember to rate, review, and share this podcast so that families suffering in silence can find us if they need us. See you next time.